Ever wondered what powers the world of your favorite superheroes? Dive into Understanding Superhero Comic Books, the definitive guide that unravels the mystery. It plunges into the captivating world of spandex, superpowers, and the masterminds who conceive them. Trace the origins and evolution of superhero comics, fueled by influences from Bela Lugosi's enigmatic charm, Errol Flynn's daring exploits, and the early mesmerizing magicians. Witness Batman, Wonder Woman, Captain America, and more as they navigate societal shifts, reflecting our world within their epic tales. By Alex Grand's Understanding Superhero Comic Books, available now. Well, welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast with Alex Rand and Jim Thompson. Today, we have multiple Eisner Award-winning uh, writer and artist, Carol Tyler, joining us today. Carol, thank you so much for being here. So happy to be here. Well, Jim and I are going to hopscotch through your life. This is going to be like a this is your life sort of uh, episode. So, Jim, go ahead and start it off. Okay, right. so, Carol, I, I always like to start with your birth and, and your parents everything it's this is going to be odd compared to normal because usually when i do it we we don't know all the answers or we certainly haven't read stories about everything whereas i'm asking you questions here that i sort of know some of the answers already because they've they've been told in your in your comic strips over the years so if when I'm asking you these, feel free to reference the stories like say, you know, well, I, I told this in, in, we're in my first, you know, story in Weirdo or something like that. It's fine to, to, to give footnotes for us here. So you were, you were born in, in well, you, you were, grew up up until like age of nine in Chicago. Was that like the north side of Chicago? Yeah, we lived on Addison Street, which was be, between Riverview Park and Cubs Field, right on, right by the L train. Oh, that's great! So you were you were right there by was it Wrigley Field? Is that what it is? No, we were, were Lincoln Lincoln Avenue. Okay, Wrigley was a ways down. Oh, okay. All right. So were you a baseball fan? Oh God. Well, let me just say, baseball was so present in our lives back then in the fifties. Like everybody played baseball, and you. We, since we lived near the L train and it was crappy underneath there because it was it was these I-beams that went up, you know, an I-beam thing so that the L would be up an elevated train. And so nobody had a house under there. And it was really, you know, it's where people would take their dogs and they'd never pick up the dog poop and there were broken bottles and all that stuff. And that's where we played baseball. And we were always, there was always a pickup game going on. Because if you played in the street, you know, you could bonk a car and somebody would be pissed off. Although to this day, I remember car, car, C-A-R, which meant get out of the street. You know, we'd be playing stickball or something. But you could really hit away under these, under these, under the elevated. And then one of the fun things to do was when the train would come by, when the train would be going by, it would stop in a little bit. Over the over Addison Street, that was where the station was. So as hard as we could, we'd get up there and we'd try to throw stuff up so that the suction would make it stay up on <laughs> underneath the L train, and then it would stop <laughs> and then bonk down on all the cars. Oh no! We didn't do that very often, but because you couldn't really get it up there 
you know, we weren't that strong, but it was one of the fun things we always tried to keep doing. So Chicago, well, I lived in Chicago. My parents had a business. They were in the pipe plumbing business, pipe fitters. Your dad was and, a construction plumber, right? Is that well, what it was called? In Chicago, he was doing the whole thing. C. Tyler, C. W. Tyler Plumbing. So I found in the stuff going through the stuff when my parents passed away, I found their books that they kept. Like you know, somebody had a toilet leaking up on Ashland Avenue, or there'd be you know Mrs. So and So, you know, her drain was stopped up. So my dad had to do all kinds of plumbing stuff. His dad was a plumber, and so he learned the trade before he went into the war and. When they got out and lived in Chicago, there on Addison, my mom did the bookkeeping and payroll and you know all that stuff. But all of us kids were, you know, that's that was the thing. I grew up playing with these elbows and copper pipes and bags of asbestos. <laughs> you know, because they'd wrap that around boiler pipes. Now, did did he want your brother, uh, your older brother, to go into the business? Did he want him to be a plumber, too? My older brother could not stand anything going on in our family. He was gone. He wanted to play. He wanted to be in sports. He was the guy instigating all the, the hijinks out on the street. Because he was kind of the leader, wasn't he? The Like the leader of everybody um, yeah. in the neighborhood. Yeah. He and my sister, and they hated me because I was the baby that they had to drag along. I was thinking about that. The other, like for example, when when you were with my brother, he'd he'd just say, "Today's test is that we have to get from here to the end of the block and not have our feet touch the ground." And so it'd be like, "What?" So which meant climbing and crawling and leaping across cars, garages trees, everything, poor people's porches, because the test was that you couldn't have your feet touch the ground. And there was always something going on like that. <laughs> Weird, fun, but, but, uh, but then I had to stay in the yard, so I would do the test on my own. I wasn't included in a whole lot of what was going on in Chicago because I was little, and there was this heavy heaviness of the business and there was some kind of vibe I've interpreted over the years that they were, you know, they were maxed out, grieving the loss of their first child that never got addressed that I wrote about in the Hannah story. Right. So when when did um, you when did you find out about about that? Well, I knew Anne existed. Okay. All right. But I didn't know what really happened. I mean, I knew she the story was that she died of burns so you know there you go she died of burns and then we'd be in the car and she my mom only other time once in a while she'd say the first star in the sky that's Anne's star so that was the extent of it and you know we'd see pictures you look through the photo albums stuff which I I show in the Hannah story I show going through the pictures and asking questions and pretty much being shut down. So it wasn't until she was much older and it was later in life that she opened up and it happened because she was in a prayer group at her church. And this is, this would be 
40 to 50 years later that she finally told me the story. And then I was mortified at what really happened. And as I dug deeper, because I wanted to tell us, I wanted to do it as a comic story. And I found out more things and more horrors emerged. I wanted to do something. I was mad. I wanted to sue them or do something, but statute of limitations. Does does anybody in your family, when you're historically speaking, has has anyone ever said you are not going to tell this story? This is this is private. This is mine. No, it's all wide open. Is it really? Who's going to say? Who's going to say? Don't express yourself. I mean, no. First of all, the first part, my family of origin, the Tylers, no expectations for me whatsoever. So. When I did tell the stories, I mean, they'd be like, why did you have to make me look like that? Or my sister would say, or some kind of like, fine, if that's what you, the way you see it, that's it. But yeah, it's the way I saw it from my perspective. If you got a beef, you do a comic or you tell it a different way. <laughs> and but, that, that didn't cause any, any long-term frictions. Everybody's, I mean, I realize all families have difficulties, but. I don't think I ever really said anything that was horrible. You know, it was all always in with with love, you know, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. You're probably harder on yourself than on anybody around you in some ways. Well, I I I'm not in it for what did I tell somebody the other day and I thought this should be my catchphrase. Well, let me think. I'm not in it to hurt anybody. I'm not in it for the humiliation. I'm in it for the humanity. Yeah. Yeah. That comes across too. Although some of the stories I, I just read, went and reread your all those Tommies story. And, and that's a, that's a book which is filled with that because that's the very nature of, of that. Um, well, it's because that was in a book about assaults yeah. and me too. And yeah, I, I told about just how that it was during those times in the late 70s, in the early 70s, late 60s, early 70s, to try to come of age sexually. I think I did okay. The I didn't hurt anybody there, except I did call out some people who were behave. If they earned that bad behavior, they, they're going to be called out. That seems that seems fair. I noticed in a lot of those, in, in Mary Fleener's uh, story as well, a lot of times it's not the sexual assault that hurts after all these years as much as the almost the bad manners, the ba- the betrayal that goes along with it. The the little details stick in in your head as much as 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 any other aspect of it. Do you think? Yeah, the double, It was the double standard. In other words, you can't be a fully engaged you can't be fully engaged but boy we can and if you do it we're going to label you that's what mine was about being labeled as and and losing being put down because i was experimenting right because i you know so it became a, a stigma that i didn't that was put thrown on me by the men of the time 
And I thought, well, you fuckers. <laughs> now, when you were growing up, was there a double standard in your house with between your, your brother or brothers? Because you also had eventually a younger brother uh, that was, what, nine years younger than you? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so were they did they get treated differently by your mom and your dad than than the girls were? Well, the expectations were that my brother would go into the plumbing business, but he didn't want nothing to do with that. He wasn't interested in any of my dad's tools. My brother Jim was a little bit more interested in the tools, and they decided he'll he they decided for him that he'd go into the trades. My brother was an athlete, so he leaned towards that. My sister joined the convent because, you know, she was holy <laughs> and I was wild and I wasn't, but they didn't know what to do. You know, they didn't know where to stick somebody. They didn't know how to deal with somebody who would was outspoken or like I was very introverted, but, it, but then I would do something that they considered to be a little bit weird. And yeah, my dad did say, at the table one night, I said, oh, I want to go to college. He said, you go to college? You're just going to get married, be some guy's wife. Why would I send you to college for that? And I said, okay. Don't care. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go to college. I just, I had a lot of issues with, like, being a Catholic girl. There was just a whole lot of it didn't add up to me. Yeah, so there was that thing about boys and girls. It's true, you know, and boys could achieve. Girls had to become housewives. You need to go take typing and become a secretary. Anyway, yes, there was that sense of I didn't, you know, there was nobody ever said to me, wow, you've got talent. You can draw so well. I'm going to get you a private tutor, which people come to me and they want private tutors for their girls in this day and age. I want to. I want to help you achieve. I want to make sure, you know, just, I guess that it just didn't, it wasn't on, on that generation to push their girls. I don't know. So when you would win like prizes for your like sign design or something, I, I know the, the, the one that you, you won that you talk about in the fab four book, did, did anybody um, encourage you at that point and say, wow, you really have a gift. Did the, did the nuns at school or anyone notice that you could draw really well? Well, they knew it. They knew I could draw. But, you know, when girls who drew back then could do nice backdrops, paint a nice backdrop for the uh, bake sale. It was like it was considered an additional skill for a good, rounded person who could find themselves one day needing to use that skill to make a costume for their children. Of course, that, that makes that makes mm -hmm. sense. So we've talked about gender. Let's talk about class a little bit so we get both covered. When you were at some point, you all left the, the, the north side of Chicago and you moved moved on up, as as they say on the Jeffersons, too. Was it moved on out? We moved out. It was, 10, <laughs> it, it was an hour's drive out of the city. That's it's Fox Lake, the, Illinois. And Nowheresville. And you went to kind of a more upscale school where you were a little bit worried about the... the no, it wasn't upscale at all. It wasn't? No, Chicago had a Catholic school system, and we went to the parish school, St. Andrews. And when we moved to Fox Lake, there was a parish school. 
So I went from one Catholic school to another type of Catholic school. So there was no sense of like class. It was just, you were in Catholic school. Okay. Because I you were a little bit embarrassed about your like making sure they understood your dad wasn't a bathroom kind of a plumber. That was in high school. Now that oh, was different. That's it. Okay. So I'm not wrong. I just, I got ahead of myself. It's when you got into high school and that wasn't Catholic school. Yes, it was Catholic school. I, went, oh, okay. I had 13 years of Catholic education. So it was um, in high school that it was, it was, you were feeling a, a class distinction. Yeah. And that's because the, when I went to St. Andrews, you had the parish school. So everybody in the neighborhood, they all went to the same school. And then we moved out to Fox Lake. It was local kids out there. all went to the same school. But once it went to high school, there was only one Catholic school in the whole county. And it was right in the middle of the county. So there were buses that would come from all over the county. So you'd have people coming from out in the sticks like me. And then you'd have people coming from larger cities like Waukegan, North Chicago, Highland Park, you know, wealthy suburbs on the, the wealthy suburbs included. Over on the North Shore, closer to Lake Michigan, which was north of Chicago, there were Lake Forest, there were wealthier enclaves, communities. Yes. And then on the other side of the, on the western side of the county where I lived up near Wisconsin, it was lakes. So there was like fishermen and people with boats, you know, but there's nothing glamorous about it. It was just, you know, very working class. And so we moved out there. That meant that my dad was going to have to commute back into the city because his plumbing ties were still in the city. And my mom had to get a little job local you know, and keep us kids going and stuff like that. And then we'd get on the bus. We got on the bus and I had to get on the bus at like quarter to seven in the morning so I could get to school by whatever. It took 45 minutes, to, almost almost an hour to get to this to school every day, do the whole school day, and then come home at night. And so the, the big, when I got to high school was, wait a minute, I'm not in Fox Lake anymore. I'm not even in my neighborhood in Chicago. There's a big world out there with all kinds of different people from different backgrounds. And the first order of business was people had to figure out where you fit. And I didn't really fit because I was a hipster all along. I always felt like I knew what was going on. And my brother was king of sports. And so I had an immediate status. Well, Woo! because he was the all-time champion of everything and people idolized him. So just by default, I was, you know, in some ways, but at the same time I was from Fox Lake. And so it's it, it part of the sniping that goes on with people is trying to put you down. I finally realized I didn't belong in any of those groups. And I don't know. I just kind of became a, like a lot of artists, I became kind of an artist, or outsider, always looking forward to the day when I get the hell out of school. And we'll we'll save the um, 1965 and the Beatles and that that period for for later on when we'll talk about your your other book. But okay, so that was the time just before high school. That was the end of eighth grade. You know, just before it all turned into that high school angst. So the high high school was was tougher for you in in a lot of is that right? Well, first thing that first thing that happened was I had a full set of braces put on 
And so I remember just being having a headache all the time, going down to the counselor's office and laying there because they that's back when they would turn to, to move your teeth. I had to have my jaw was really bad. I mean, it's big now, yeah, but <laughs> so they had to pull teeth and literally move my jaw back. They were supposed to do surgeries, and it was, my dad did it as a barter for this guy. Uh, what do you call it? Orthodontist. Yeah. So I would come to school and to just even go like this and touch the top of my head, it would just radiate with pain. I had so much facial pain that first, my freshman year, I just felt terrible. And yet I was trying to look cool, you know? And one day my dad said, or the orthodontist said he wanted more work. My my dad put in a bathroom and the guy said that that wasn't going to cover the cost of the teeth. So just like that, they got all of that I'm supposed to stand for another year. I just took them off. That's why I have a weird bite because he only got halfway through the job because my wow. dad said, hell no, I'm not putting in a kitchen. Not taking your bathroom. Well, there was a fight over who's what the cost was. So I got stuck in the middle with this terrible grill. But then the pain was gone and I could just, I was quickly able to, to assess what the hell was going on. And I got a lot of, more attention being a kind of outsider artist type. Usually I ask people about their comic influences. A lot of them, you know, start reading and they're reading superhero stuff and everything else. I know you weren't, you weren't doing that, but you did read uh, mad and John Stanley's, some of his, his books, the Nancy and Sluggo and, and uh, all of those. And then obviously you were you you were very into Ernie Bushmiller's Nancy strip. Um, yes, 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 absolutely. We my my mother always got the newspaper. We were a newspaper reading family, especially at dinner time. You know, there'd be a paper there, and so that's when I would read Nancy. Was it weird? Was it weird going from the Bushmiller Nancy to the Stanley Nancy? With the I mean, because they're two very different stories in a lot of ways were you reading nancy when it was the the uma goose pimple you know yeah, like goose pimple. yeah, yeah goose pimple. i love her yeah I'll, and i know i was reading stanley in chicago because one of the stupidest fun things i ever did and i still love it because <laughs> i had no power and my brother didn't let me read his comics at all of course so the whole super thing was like stupid to me anyway I mean, I knew there were jokes inside the bazooka comics, the bazooka gum. They always seem pretty lame. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So I didn't care. But when I read Nancy goes to summer camp, I was about as far away from the country as you could be living in Chicago there on Addison Street. I told you with the crappy crappy lots well the alleys were also equally as crappy stunk garbage but they were the alleys were set up so that you'd pull in there and you could get into your garage because the other side would be a main thoroughfare of the street so the blocks were set up in such a way in chicago that there'd be a main street somewhere halfway between that and the alley there was a thing called the gangway where you could cut through so you didn't have to go all the way around. And you'd be in the alley, 
Then you find the gangway to the next front street and so on. You go through the whole city of Chicago going through gangways. So I got this idea one day after being completely demoralized by my siblings and thinking, wait a minute. I was kept thinking about summer camp. And my parents were not going to be sending me to summer camp. But I thought maybe I could go to, I could have a pretend summer camp. So I got a towel and I put a t-shirt in it and I rolled it up like a bedroll. And then I made a sandwich. I, I don't remember. It could have been either bologna or sandwich spread. <laughs> I don't think it was peanut butter. It was some, probably a bologna sandwich with ketchup on, on uh, white bread. And I probably folded it up in wax paper. And then I went through two gangways to an alley. And I thought, this one will do. And I found the front <laughs> of somebody's garage where it was set back from the alley, just a little, just enough for me to put down that towel and eat my sandwich. And I thought I was at summer camp, just like Nancy. And in my mind, it was the summer camp from the, the big specials. Remember they make the fat. Oh yeah. 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 So that to me was the ultimate thrill that I was at camp Fafa mama. That's no worse than any other camp story I've ever heard. So, so I think it's, <laughs> it was totally stupid. Could you imagine seeing a kid walking with a towel and eating a bologna sandwich? And that's what I did. And I was thrilled. And it's amazing because Ever since that comic, I had breeze in my head thoughts. You know, I did a comic in, I think it might be in the, reproduced in Late Bloomer, called uh, Little Crosshatch Mine. Yeah, that's in there. Yeah. That's the, one with, that's the one with Nancy in it, right? Yeah, I talk about how the... The way they, they drew the screens on the summer camp buildings at Camp Fafa Mama, and just the idea that there would be a building that was all screens. There's something about that. So I've always been attracted to screen doors and just the idea of that. Yeah. You know. And there's also a bit of a discussion of like Nancy versus Lulu in that too I, I, in that I in that because my mom said you like Lulu all the way and I remember reading Lulu and she you know I made it into a punchline with yeah. the feet going on the frame the, yeah the which panel. I mean they're, they're they're kind of they're different but I could see what you I could see how there'd be a I actually kind of messed them up too a couple times before so well I, I didn't even know I didn't even know the ownership I didn't understand authorship so i would read that and i was interested in the character right and then it was like sometime later i'd say that looks a little different than the one i see in the paper and then it was you know bush miller by ernie version at the top in the big bold letters and then it took me years to figure out that somebody else drew that How, how could that be you know and then it was oh the character the character is the same it was a little different but i didn't really put the name john stan i didn't i didn't understand that 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 was but also on the the lulu was like almost like situational comedy right like a sitcom whereas nancy there's all these like funny geometric like breaking the fourth wall things that were going on all the time in that the the bushmiller nancy when i got when i got on that i thought 
I mean, to me, it was like perfection. This right. guy could nail a gag in three yes. panels. Absolutely. Boom. Yep. And you could read that and get the wholeness of that world. You could get the moment. You got the characters. It was such great writing. and the, the brevity of it, it was perfect. Yeah. And for me, a challenged reader, I didn't, you know, I'd look at the other stuff on the page, like Mary Worth, or be like, oh, so boring. No, yeah, I also right. like uh, Nancy's head shape. I like a circle face. <laughs> well, I mean, there was, I got it. I get this, you know, I didn't <laughs> yeah. have to. And I mean, I would like, I would look at the other stuff. I didn't like serialized, the serialized work. I liked that it was done and done, you know, here's the strip, here's the joke, uh, you know, next. And that kind of has carried on into my work when I do, like when I was do, started doing weirdo stuff, I realized I had to have the joke in one page. So with Bushmiller, when I learned, it's all about the timing. It's all about the setup and the timing, you know, it's all about that. So putting that, I, that thought that, wait, I got, I got X amount of real estate here and I got to make something happen. And I got to set this up and I got to deliver. Yeah, both both of them. Stanley had a great comic timing, too, in terms of setting up the joke. You could just see it. He did have As it was coming. Yeah, he but different ways. Archie comics. My sister read those. It'd be like the boring, here we go, what's going to happen at Riverdale High this week? I just could not relate. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So you you never had, now, was it partly the, did you just not care about the, the teen, that particular genre? Or was think, it just the the, the 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 actual skill of the the lack of skill of the of, of the gag? My sister liked it, therefore I did not like it. Ah, that makes sense too. I got that. She was a old. She was a, reading it in her teens, and so there was nothing that I was going to be repulsed by more than her stuff. So was she playing like sugar, sugar in the house and all that? Well, remember, my sister was holy, but then she'd say things like. And she she would listen to the radio, yeah. And she was overweight. She was unhappy, I found out later. She had a lot of responsibility thrown on her. But she was very quick to remind me how, what a flake I was, you know. She'd say, what's the name of that gas station? We'd be in the car. What's the name of that gas station right there? And I'd say, Sinclair. She'd go, ooh, you're going to hell? You told Claire to sin? Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> I'd just be mortified. <laughs> so she was holy, she was official. Right. And I didn't I, I never believed I here's you talk about feminism. I remember sitting in church when I was little, little thinking, how come it's God the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are all guys? And then the woman is over here in a little special extra area by her. How come there's no why didn't he send? Why didn't she send? Ah! So I just, I never bought into the whole thing. Yeah. I couldn't believe that if half, you look around the church, half the people in here are girls, women, ladies. The male priests, male servers, men, 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 men. Oh, there's Mary over there. And we're supposed to adore her. She's perfect. 
I just didn't, I didn't get it. So your, your brother goes off to college at Dayton and then you want to go to college too. And you're, you don't have the same, exactly the same options that, that he does. And you end up going, you end up going to Tennessee. Tell us how, how that happens. Because I didn't have any counseling or help. Like today, a counselor would try to find me a, get me placed in a school with art. The counselors back then, it didn't work like that. It was, you were kind of on, there was no school counselor. You were kind of on your own. Although I just said I was down at the counselor's office with bad, painful mouth. But truly, I don't know. It just didn't. I didn't get the right kind of thing. And there was no money. There was none of this. You can do it with scholarships. I had absolutely zero confidence in myself. I didn't do well on the SAT course. You know, I had trouble. I had problems with reading comprehension. I could do math. I was good at art. But when they would give you those, read this paragraph, and now answer the questions about what just happened in the paragraph. Just seeing that gray box of text frightened me. So I always did poorly on these tests. You mean like but if there's know, like an I, essay that you had to read and then answer multiple choice, the essay part was like, that was, that's the part you're talking I, about. I would just go. Yeah. But, but if I had to figure out, if I walked outside and saw that water was coming off the building funny and I'd have to figure out a way to drain it from the in other words, my engineering skills were through the roof. I could I could figure anything out. I could modify things. I invented things. I could see things in my mind. But the 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 matrix back then, the, the thing was, you have to do it this and you have to do that. Mm-hmm. They were going to label you. Perfect example was when I was in kindergarten, I could see music in my head. I could hear it. And I, I would make, make up songs. And so let's see if she could learn to play the piano. Send me over to Sister So-and-so. She sat me down in front of the keyboard and she said, this is middle C. All right. I just showed you where's middle C. Now find middle C. Find middle C. Find middle C. And I could, I could hear her saying that. And to me, that was music. And then... And then it was like, oh, she wants me to hit a key. I don't know what she's talking about. So the nun turned around and told my mother that I had no musical ability whatsoever. But yet I had just composed a song based on her yapping it. Yeah. And to this day, I have that happen where I'll, I'll wake up and I'll have a complete song or something in my head. And But I can do that. But I've, I've been taking this little app trying to learn how to play the piano by reading notes again. And like can't do it. I cannot read notes, but I can compose music as much as I could. That's why I like it out at my farmhouse. I have to figure everything out. How to fix things. I've taught myself electric. Of course, plumbing is easy. Did your first school when at college now, that's was that Tennessee Tech? Was that the first one? Yeah. Okay, and you went there, and then we 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 will talk about the Tommies, all the Tommies that went there, but you 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 didn't stay there, and and was it there or at the next school that you met your first husband? 
No, it was at Tech. It was at Tech. And he was he was like yeah. a big man on campus. He was the ugliest man on campus. It was called the Ugly Man Contest. And the fraternities had this ugly man thing. And I was <laughs> there was hardly any women at this college because it was a technical college. Now, I was not there for engineering. I knew I was going to go for a couple years and then transfer ultimately. And I just did it because it was I could commute. My grandma died, and so I used the money to get a car, and I commuted to the school that had cheap. It was cheaper. See, I, I didn't I didn't pass any of the tests. I didn't get any scholarships, so I ended up paying full fare at Tech until we established my residency right away. Drove to the campus. I just took the classes and right away, one of the art teachers said, what are you doing here? You're really, really good. You should not be at a technical school. And I said, really? She said, you're really good. Why don't you try UT? So I did. But, and just before I went to UT, that's when I met Alex, my first husband, Bob. And that was around 1970 or so? Yeah. And, and you guys got married. You you did what your father what your father said. You you went to school and you got married. <laughs> I found a husband. Yeah, found me. <laughs> and you guys were together for about five five and a half years. Yeah, five six years. We were together through songs in the key of life. We started out with maybe Derek and the Dominoes. You hear what I'm saying? We I can run through the albums of my marriage. He loved the Moody Blues. I hated the Moody Blues. Search the last chord. Never again. And he was he was a water quality control engineer and yes, and a stoner dealer. And were you doing any art at all during this five yes. years? Yes. Yes. We would get ripped on hash, or what's that stuff called? Hash oil. We. we oh sure. But we would get ripped. And I have pictures of me somewhere. I would lay these pages down on the... I started doing comics. They were wordless. We or Just a few words, a few characters, and they were completely nonsense. But everybody would go, Wow, that is weird. Wow, that's so weird. <coughs> I was just always painting... Uh, strange. I like the you know album art. I like yes and stuff like that. You know, I like looking at that kind of stuff. And yeah, so I did some trippy shit. <laughs> but then we moved. Is to this influenced by by under, under, underground comics of the time? Because you were, yeah, well, I'd see them. We'd see them because all the stoners. You know, well, actually, back back in the. When I first went to college and back in the stoner, early stoner days, they were around, you know, you people would have these stuff. And I remember looking at, well, there was a summer that I moved <clears throat> back up to Chicago area, back up to Fox Lake. The summer of 70, I got back with my high school sweetheart. He had a hippie van and all we did was get stoned. Rock, rock the van, and go to concerts while I worked at the sausage store. For some <laughs> reason, I'm imagining the mystery machine from Scooby Doo, and it's like Daphne and Fred in the van. Is that kind of what's going on? Scooby Doo is after my time. 
<laughs> I didn't see that. Well, that came out in like, I think, six oh, bread truck. Yeah. It was a bread truck. It was a bread oh, truck. Okay. The last place I left off with television was, what was that show? I was just thinking of it the other day. Well, there was the good time hour with uh, Sonny and Cher. You know, when I went off to college, I did not watch any television. So it abruptly ended in like mid-1969-ish. And it was, oh, Rowan and Martin's laughing. Okay. And then no TV. So when you, I missed the whole, six, most of 69, all of the 70s TV. I missed it all. I think that's fine. Watergate's overrated anyway. Totally yeah, fine. it was too, it was too. It was too hard for me to get to a TV set. Right. It wasn't the thing to do. So anyway, when I was with this guy, yeah, it was all about the stone scene. And we would go to rock concerts and people there were reading comics and stuff like that. And I saw all that stuff. But just like I told you a little bit ago, I didn't spend time figuring out who did what, except for one artist. I liked Robert Armstrong's Mickey Rat because it was a parody. Right. Like Mickey Rat. But all of that, all that stuff, Crumb, I, I remember seeing Crumb stuff. It didn't log in so much. I didn't get into the sex fantasies so much. It's just the stoner stuff, you know, it's appropriate. For, it, 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 again, it was like all these, it's like those guys are really cool. <laughs> you know, making that, the cool stuff that those guys draw. And so you, you, were, uh, you were looking at like underground comics though at the time? Oh, okay. Drawn by the cool guys. Yeah. So Zap and all that, you were you were checking that out. They're all just one monolithic those guys. Nice. That's cool. So so oh. when did you when did you read Binky Brown for the first time? Was it when mm-hmm. it came out? Not till a long time later. That was nineteen eighty-one. I so my first foray into underground was as a stoner, hanging out with hippies, and it was just more for the masses to to consume. I'll tell you what I really liked. There was a thing called the Whole Earth Catalog. And oh, yeah. I would sit there, yeah, you could sit there and read that. And then across the bottom, there was a story that was going across every page across the bottom. And I used to love that. I used to love to read that. But my drawing was, I worked at the Lake County Regional Planning Commission. So my skills were used on a drafting board creating zoning case files for people that wanted to do zoning changes in the county. So I'd I'd have to go through the maps and prepare plats and do overlays. And I learned all about the graphic materials that I use today, inking and everything. Leroy lettering set and all that working at the Lake County Regional Planning Commission. And I was their zoning case file preparer. And that was from 72 to like 74 it all went kablooey because I was married, but there was a guy who worked there that I just, I could not describe, but I had feelings for. Now I realized I had, you know, we were like hot for each other, but he was married too. And so going to work changed from like, you know, making a nice line, perfect, press on lettering to he's over there. It finally ended up, I had like a nervous breakdown and and had to leave work because I didn't know what, I didn't know what was going on in my head. It turned out I was miserable. I was miserably married and I, I was, I didn't want to admit I liked this guy. 
It didn't matter because my husband was cheating on me all the time anyway. <laughs> yeah, Separate. that's what I had read. Now, did is that when you left left that marriage? Is that when you went to Middle Tennessee State, or was that? Well, we moved to Nashville. Ah, that's right. You but, moved but to Nashville. Let, let's move to Nashville. You know, he, he got a job with the state of Tennessee and closer to his family. And my, fam- my family had a house in Tennessee. And there was a three-bedroom house that we got. One bedroom was ours. One bedroom was his. The middle bedroom was mine to do whatever I like. And so I piled it up with my art supplies and I would walk in there and say, shut the door. I didn't know what to do. Because I hadn't met myself. And so when I started to go back to school, while I was in Nashville, commuting down to MTSU, I met people out there down there who were fully committed to doing our work. And I thought, that's who I am. So no wonder I can't, I can't be married and going into the room and doing some art and coming out and making like a beef roast. It doesn't, it didn't add up for him and his fucking stoner friends. So that's when I had this idea that like, I gotta leave him. And the songs in the key of life came out. It was to the backdrop of that, that, uh, I left. And at MTSU, I found my, my, I found something called personal vision of what it is I wanted to do. Like when you're stoned, you're going to make bullshit stoner art, right? Or when you're doing this or that and school going to do a poster or do what the assignment is or whatever. But here I was in school give, and the, the way forward was Express yourself. Do it. Do what you like. And so I, that's that's where it all started. That's where I started to be an artist in '75. So tell us about because I love this story about how you decided to leave the South and how it connects with your brother and the Olympics and all of that. Okay, so I was at MTSU, and I had a great three years there, and I learned a lot from the people there. I had made great friends, and I was one of the guiding stars. Cool. Yeah. And so I was with people who didn't do what the professors said. We did what we wanted, and so we invented a bunch of shit, and we all ended up turning out to be pretty great artists. Anyway, yeah, I got out of school. I decided to do the census. I did that. I made a bunch of money. I was going to go out to Mexico and do the census. Remember, I am a registered census taker from the 1980 census. It occurred to me that I have to wait 70 years from 1980 till I can look at my own work. But I made a bunch of money. It was amazing. Great census taker. I was out of school by then. And then I decided to go live in Knoxville. I guess where I lived. I lived in a house owned by Johnny Knoxville's mother. <laughs> I didn't know that until years later. And then John Lennon got shot while I was yeah. in Knoxville. And I went, Oh, what am I doing in Knoxville? Oh, I wanted to grieve. I wanted to, I was so enraged. I just, I tried to make art. I had no money. I turned in my cans of beans so I could buy Red, yellow, blue, 
and black and white. And I took cardboard and I made pictures about it. And I got into graduate school. And that's how I got the fuck out of Tennessee. Hmm. But there was also the 1980 Olympics. And my brother was in both my brothers are in the bobsled team. Except my brother made USA sled one. Jimmy came in third. He lost by an eyelash hair. It's terrible. It was very excruciating for him. But he made the 84 team. And so it was like, wait a minute. I could go to the Olympics and I could stay at his house and I could live up there and work there. And I did. I think now I know. Put your hat on right, Tyler. The Olympics came in the winter, and it was after the Olympics that I went to t- back to Tennessee, and that's when I did the census. And then from there, I flipped over to New York, or uh, I flipped over to Knoxville, and that's when John Lennon got shot, and that's when I said, I'm going back to graduate school. So you see that? <laughs> these events, these things really propelled me, because it's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay with this guy? I was with this guy. Are you going to move to New York? Is he coming with you? Are you going to do this? Are you going to follow a guy along your whole life? What are you doing? always wanted to do my own thing find a way you know follow something and I just the idea that I could go work at the Olympic Games was incredible I got the job being uh first they hired me as a children's art coordinator but then I had my eye on the prize which was to hang the show there was a the thing about the Olympics in 1980 was they it was the first year that they brought sport and art together for what was called the whole man and they used da vinci's arts and sport and so they had a complete art exhibit they had a fine arts center up there and i noticed that they were going to have paintings by some of my favorite artists and i thought you mean I get to hold in my hands a Susan Rothenberg? You mean I can hold an Eric Fischel? <laughs> you mean I can hold a Don Nice in my hands and help hang that show? So I got that children's art thing done in a snap and right away focused my attention on working at that fine art center. And I, yes, I got to look at up close and personal all the paintings and all the artwork and everything I ever loved of the, my art stars. And then that got done, and they said, we need somebody to coordinate the closing ceremonies. Now, look, I saw everything. I saw Eric Hyden win his seven gold medal. I saw this. I saw that because it was small, and I was hitchhiking up there because it was a small town. It was loaded with snow. Nobody could get around, but I could get around. I lived up there. Well, they need somebody to do the closing ceremonies. Okay, I'll do that. What does that mean? I get to meet Chuck Mangione. (laughs) <laughs> I met every athlete under the in the whole wide world. And guess what? Oh, my brother shows up here. Here's two tickets for this hockey game. Hockey game? I can't go to a hockey game. I got work to do. I got to meet. So I got to take the Yugoslavian ski, ski team, ski jump team. They got to be at practice. All right. I'll drag my ass over to this, again, hockey game. So I'm sitting there. And it's the game where the U.S beat the Russian team. Most amazing hockey game in the history. I know! <laughs> Just absolutely. Anyway. So, so let's get you, let's get you to California. I mean, you start doing some, some trips. Your boyfriend 
from from the south comes up. I need to tell you, it was during this time before I moved to California. It was during this whole this this is a very important time because I was doing artwork all all along. I remember being up in the at the Olympics doing uh, they had a little fanzine and I was doing artwork for that. And then I started doing kind of like adding the words and making sure that everything I said, all the narration was added to the panels. So even though I loved fine art, I was really starting to add the graphic element and stuff I'd learned as a, as a zoning case preparer. I was putting that into my paintings. My paintings were very narrative. I was telling stories. I was doing stand-up comedy. I was doing all that stuff before I ended up you know, getting through with graduate school. In graduate school, I was doing minimalist new image type paintings with language. With words. Yeah, I, I saw a reference to that. You were you were doing narratives even in single panels during your yes. art and things. I was just curious about so your your boyfriend comes up and he goes to School of Visual Arts. He's not at Syracuse. And he, no, he's not in. He didn't enroll in school. He crashed. Oh, he was. He was. Classes. That's right. He was taking classes. Yeah. And he made connections such that that allowed the two of you to do, go on summer trips. Al, you got the addresses for people like Griffith and and Justin Green. All the all the SF people. Yeah, because there was that one summer that I said, I'll be damned if I'm gonna stay down here in the Lower East Side with you. We'll end up murdering each other. So I'm going out to be with my roommate from. Tennessee, she's living in um, in a house full of women in San Francisco. I'm going out there, and while I'm out there, I'm going to look up all these people. And that that sort of sets a course for your your life at that point because you make these connections that are going to follow through to your next stage that we're going to get to in a minute, which is working at Weirdo, doing uh, actual comics for Weirdo and, and stuff. But you meet Justin Green at that point and there's some confusion between him your your relationship with him and your relationship with your your uh, boyfriend at the time well when i went out there i was there to see with my friend mary and be and yeah i was gonna go see all these people and i met them all i met like you know i'd call up one and hey hi i'm my name is Carol Tyler. I'm from Syracuse. I don't know, look at my arms. I love, I love Zippy. You know, and they would be like, oh, great. Okay, bye. I'd call Spain. You know, I'd call different ones thinking, fangirl all the way. I called up Justin. He said, oh, well, how about lunch? <laughs> he was on the... Mm, yeah, let's see. Here's a girl coming in here. Let's see what this is about. So <laughs> I met him at a sign job. We had sandwiches. We went for a sandwich. He was working Tommy's joint. He was different. You know, he was interested in me personally, not just like, oh, yeah, hey, fangirl. Yeah, good. Good for you. And, and, had, and at that point, you had read his book? Oh, yeah. Oh, and, and that was another, I mean, that's a gigantic influence in what you've, you've the kind of comics that you were going to tell, correct? Well, because I thought, wait a minute, this guy's from Chicago. I'm from Chicago. Hey, look, he's Catholic. I was Catholic. So I got all the jokes. And I got all the letters, a lot of inside Chicago stuff. You know, that unless you're from that area, you probably wouldn't get spitting on the Winnetka sign, you know. There was just some things about Midwest life that just went like, yeah, I get this. I got this. So when I got out there, that's what we talked about, you know. And, of course, he was on his best polish and being swell. 
And I was, of course, you know, googly-eyed and amazed that I actually got to meet the guy who wrote Pinky Brown. And he was very much presenting himself like the suburban boy that he depicts in the book. And I never could think, I thought, oh, he's probably not as fucked up as that character he did. (laughs) (laughs) But you were wrong? He can't be that fucked up. <laughs> and and there we go. I and then you guys have a daughter together in 1985. No, that's not where we go. I had to go back to. Oh yeah, no, I I know you go back and, and you don't be know where with to... this other guy and forget Justin and be with this other guy until Justin shows up and there's a big fight and then I ended up in San Francisco with Justin. I mean, there's a lot in between there. There's a lot of me helping this other guy. I helped this other guy get launch his career, but you never hear about that. Ah, yes, that was that was very frustrating to you once you had your baby, right? So that's right. that's a made that's the outrage yeah. story. Yeah, and we'll, we'll a, talk about that. Story. What was that guy, Roy, or something? But yeah, yeah, I, I, I read about that. Roy, you, you had that in a story. Yeah, but we'll talk about that story because that that's a, a great one. So, Alex, let's let's get to Weirdo. All right. You started doing stories for Weirdo, published by Last Gasp. And for our listeners, just a quick review. Weirdo was a humor comics magazine started by Robert Crumb that ran for about 27 issues from 81 to 90, plus a final issue a few years later. Before talking about your own experiences and work there, what would you say about just Weirdo in general? Were you familiar with it? before before contributing to so, I just knew that after the underground scene that there were these anthologies and I got became familiar with arcade and then when I lived in New York City there were a couple of times I'd go to Art Spiegelman's place hmm. with Francoise and we would hang up raw posters and stuff like that mm-hmm. so I did my time in the trenches with helping raw I was aware of Miles and of the struggles that he would discuss, you know, our art would talk about, you know, things that were issues for him. And it was nice to have that. And then you'd go to a Jean-Michel opening. <laughs> it, was the, it was the scene in New York. But when I got to, uh, so I, I, it was through that network of that, that I became aware of the, who was doing what in comics like. And then when I got out to San Francisco, Justin was not interested in that scene at all. He was doing, he was doing child care because he had a kid and signs. And so it was on me to seek out things. So I did like something, a letter to the house that would say burrito party. Come on down. Ron Turner would have a burrito party. Burrito, okay. Mm-hmm. Every year. His famous burrito parties. And so I'd say, Justin, we got an invitation to go. He said, I'm not going to that. Because Justin has no interest in social anything. Mm-hmm. So can, can I go? Yeah, you can go. So why not? So I'd go. I, I started making the scene. And when you make the scene, that's when you meet this one and this one and this one and this one. And that's how I met this one and this one. This one did that. And then it was like, mm, you want to see some comics I'm working on? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Sure, cool. Send them in, you know, let's see you what brought you some, got. You brought, you brought art with you. Yeah. 
yeah, I always had my portfolio. And yeah, and that's it just that was and then I think we had a we had an open, we had an open house when I first moved out to San Francisco. Everybody came over. I have a drawing table set up. Justin had his set up. I I wish somebody had taken videos of that. But that turned into a disaster because an old girlfriend of Justin's was there and he had unfinished business. And so they were yakking it up over that way. <laughs> I was mad and sitting by my drawing table, but I was sitting there with Bill Griffith and, you know, Spain and, all, you know, it's like oh, a perfect, a perfect array of people that, you know, I wish I could talk, get around a table today. They were like, don't worry about him. You know, he's just being Justin and be like, <laughs> I didn't know the guy. I just knew some stuff from his comics. And so it's kind of like the way it's been with us. I do my thing, he does his thing. He does he did signs, he had a kid, and soon I was expecting and we had a kid and oh pretty much he lives in his realm and I live in my realm artistically completely. Because he is, he was set. And I said to him, I'm meeting you late in your life, you know, at that time, 37, 38. I can't expect you to change because of me. And I'm who I am. And I've been around do, looking for my art and trying to do my thing. I got my, I kept my maiden name. I don't want to be Mrs. Green. I just want to be who I am and tell right. my story. Do your own thing, yeah. It's been the way it's been. So, we don't we don't get together. We don't say like, hey, come over here and look at this panel. What should I do? Nope. Although I have often coughed up a punchline. When he was doing the sign game, yeah. he'd be at the table going, okay. I was like, all right, come on, come with the script. Well, the guy comes in and I'd say, I'd think about it for a while. And then I thought, and I'd go, here's what you need to say. That deliver. So I should have been a gag writer because I always can come up with that gag. <laughs> or at least that that thing that pulls it together at the end, you know? Right, right. The punchline. Just um, like Bushmiller. I'm not comparing myself to Bushmiller, but I like the way he would t tighten it up or he would wrap right. it up. Make it clean. Yeah, clean exit. So then when you were contributing to Weirdo then, and you kind of met people at the party, you started then contributing your stuff. They, it sounds like they saw, they liked what you were, what you were showing in your portfolio. So you contributed some stuff and what it was under Aileen Kaminsky, Kaminsky Crumb, that, that it, uh, your stuff was then, you submitted your stuff over to Weirdo. Is that right? Yeah. And I think I had the feeling that, there weren't a whole lot of people submitting. <laughs> okay. So that was Maybe. kind of a nice, there was actually an opening probably for some material. We have an opening for a girl just like you. Yes. Uh, <laughs> no, I, people were submitting. It just was a dull time. You got to remember the, the sixties and then there was the hippie time. And then Gerald Ford came in and everything dropped like a thud. Disco was going on. People were sh uh, doing cocaine and so that just kind of pulled the rug out on a lot of stuff. And like creatively, people were too coked out to create. Uh, there was a lot of coke. And comic books were weird. They were 
printed on glossy stock and they were overproduced and I just, oh, I hated that. Uh, that that was the furthest thing from my mind was anything comic book like that mm. and art was had had come out of this traction period and it was starting to come back into figuration and so things were really getting different and michael jackson was back right okay <laughs> that's great that he's factored into this somehow i like that so then you, your first issue of Weirdo was Weirdo 18, and that was the first one that Alien Kraminsky Crumb edited. That was in fall of 1986. Then you did, yet yeah, some of your pieces show up in 20 to 25 and 27 to 28. So what was it like to be a painter working with colorful things and now to then distill it into a black and white kind of story delivery did that did you have to change how you're expressing it and fit it into a black and white framework or was that easy for you because you were already into strips that were black and white i had to learn all over again because for me color has always been a vehicle for emotion Mm -hmm. right exactly and i had a sense of they had assignments and so now it's like all that stripped away and now you just got to draw it. I had to really find my way back into drawing. And I noticed when things got printed that, oh, there you are, Tyler, trying to make paint strokes. It doesn't work graphically. You, if you're going to be graphic, you got to go graphic. You can't halfway be in color with your mark making. So that meant getting very rigid. Kind of like, you know, less expressive. Right. I kept figuring out a way to be expressive. And then it started shaping the panels and it started doing this and that. I mean, I'm sure you've seen how my work has evolved. Mm-hmm. Because once drum scanners were invented, then you could, the technology allowed these comic book publishers doing independent stuff, they could afford to do color because it became low cost, whereas before cost was prohibitive. So we had to do everything in black and white. The only thing color was the cover. And I was never given any, maybe one or two cover jobs. I always went to, well, Robert had all the weirdo covers, but over the years, I just, I never got any covers. Then I just assumed that meant I wasn't strong enough. But that's also during the time when I was known as Ann Moore. Hmm. Oh, you know, um, you did do that women's um, comics, the final cover. Yeah, yeah, I was given the honor of that, and I, I love that. I wanted to do more, but but it just didn't pull out that way. And I had a kid, and I got I had to have work, you know. I, she had asthma. I had to have health insurance. Right. Yeah, domestic demands are are serious. Now, your first story in issue eighteen for Red Brides. Did you have a sense of what you wanted to bring to Weirdo? Or do you feel like you were still kind of a work in progress at this point? Or do you yes, feel like... Yes, absolutely. Because even though I could tell a great story... Yeah. I could tell a good story like stand-up comedian style, too. I always kept... I had crowds that would listen to me tell my stories. It was amazing. And I did performing and stuff like that. So now I got to do it in the comics form. And what I did with Four Red Brides, I just kind of half-baked idea, I don't know. 
and again, the technically didn't work because mm-hmm. I was still kind of trying to bridge the gap between, am I going to do it graphically? I never really wanted to give over to that. I'm looking for a hair tie. I never fully wanted to give over to that. You know, I didn't want to give up the painterly marks. I really liked a brush. Right. And I didn't like the rigidity. I don't like doing perspective. There were a whole bunch of things like that. that I'd see Justin over there working and he'd be like, I'd be like, oh, it's so dry and harsh, you know, and maybe he can pull that off. I was so glad when the color did come because then I could, you know, start with be a more. smush. Yeah, yeah. And then, right. Express more, be more yourself. I wanted to show wind. How do you show wind? It's hard to show wind with black pen marks. Oh, yeah, you can go like that. But I wanted to show you know, a certain thing. And then I had to, I'm still figuring this out. I'm still trying to draw everything. It's like, and as I'm getting older and work, the stuff I'm working on now, it's like the, the, the book I'm working on now, this is after Soldier's Heart. Guess what? All black and white. I've gone back to black and white because, and I'm, and now it's like, how can you do this? You never learned that lesson. So now you're going to ace it or you can get out of here. (laughs) So it's almost a challenge also, but it's interesting. It's just kind of what you're in the mood to to do also. So then Uncovered Property 1987, I thought it was a fun story. And it kind of goes to what you were saying earlier about in your family, girls being treated, treated different than boys, bit of the devil's standard and the shirt being off and how that's different between the siblings and that you had this uh, Marilyn Monroe reference in the story. So at this point, were you thinking, you know, I want to make, I like autobiographical. Were you basically thinking, you know, autobiography is kind of what I want to be doing comic wise. It was never a conscious decision. I just knew I could never do that superhero thing. Right. Because I just saw my family as characters all always. And maybe it's because as, you know, the child that was told to shut up and I spent a lot of time under tables just watching people or, you know, how it is for the little one. Sit down and shut up. I just always observed and couldn't get a word in edgewise, so I'd listen. And it seemed interesting enough to me. So in a way, it was almost like a lot of the responses or observations you made finally were able to find a voice because back then, as they were happening in real time, you you were probably what kind of repressing a lot of that. Would you say that? You mean like when I was growing up? Yeah, I, I was just watching the adults. You know, I was just tuned in. Those shows would come on TV, and it's like, what's the difference between the honeymooners and like my parents? None. There's no difference. Look at them. He's you know, and I'd sit back and just watch. My mom would be at the sink and my dad would want something. She'd get it out of the refrigerator and my sister would like kick my brother. So it's like, this is a TV show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting also, because, you know, you're a professor and you do talks and things, but there was one story, 1987 pork chops. There's like high art gallery people and how they can build almost like a fake fame. And there's a comedy around that. So it sounds like you still have this almost like down to earth, approach as you observe people 
even if they're in this kind of high art status, you still can almost somewhat reduce them to a comic absurdity, right? Well, I don't know what you're talking about. Help me figure this out because when you observe people, Mm -hmm. like the other day I was in the car with Justin and he said, oh, look at that guy up there. The thing I like about it is you can really, if if you're parked here, it was a Kroger, you can really see because of the high sidewalk, you can really see these characters Mm -hmm. walking. I need to come back with my sketchbook. And I said, I would never come back here with my sketchbook. I don't need to do that. All I need to do is tune into what I know. I've, it's in my head. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Uh-huh. I don't need to sketch at Kroger. There's right. nothing walking by that I can't. I'm not saying I'm above that, but, and I do need information. Yeah. Sure. I mean, uh-huh. if I just drew a, panel about my brothers throwing chairs into a dumpster <laughs> it was like how many times have you seen a dumpster and you know what they look like yeah but i had to look and then it was like i couldn't find the one that was in my mind's eye oh interesting yeah so he's sometimes there's a, still a need for reference somewhere so everything i saw i didn't like so i ended up drawing what i had in my head mental and it looked right mm. the only thing I, there's just a few little references. Like when you're at a dumpster, I always like to climb in them, (laughs) which means that there's stairs, there's rungs. And then to get on that first rung, you got to put your, so that tells me the scale. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to see a picture of a guy doing that. I just imagine going to look inside of one Mm -hmm. and then, Oh, okay. So if I had to go like that, and you can't look into a dumpster from standing, you got to get up on the rungs to look over. So it's over my head, so they're this tall. Mm-hmm. There's a couple uh, weirdos pieces that you had that I've, I thought were very enduring. Like they were in two different issues, but they were kind of the same theme. In issue 20, 21 took place in 1958 in year seven, and Auntie Mary smacks smacks you and your scrawny body coming out and of a wetsuit and then in weirdo 24 you're 37 and she points out the scrawny body again you wrote like some things never change it was like little those little moments in time kind of sentimental moments that are endearing that you're able to put out there you know when when those moments happen do you then think i want to put that down on paper or is it more like you think of it later and then decide to express it. I don't, I don't live life for content. Mm -hmm. You know, what I did last time or what I did when I started out is change so much. I've been at this 40 years, you know? Mm -hmm. So when I think back on Auntie Mary, it's just ancient ago. And why I did it the first time was because it seemed like I needed to correct an injustice. And then the set, and then a miracle or a strange turn of events. I was back at her pool. I never thought I would be back at my aunt's pool. And yet there we were. And she did the same exact thing. So it was shocking to me that she learned no, or nothing changed. Nothing changed her behavior in all those years of, of that. So 
when I think about now, like what I'm doing now, I have no axe to grind. I have no agenda. But I have something I'm trying to say. Mm. Right. And it is based on what has happened or what I've experienced. But yet I'm sick and tired of talking about me. I'm sick of I'm sick of being the central character. And I want to pass the football, you know, I want to get out of it. And that's mm. part of what I wrestle with and part of what I communicate in my next work is is getting away from the self as subject matter. Right. I don't right. want to be the star of the show. I just want to tell the stories that I happen to be in. <laughs> because I mean, then it's like, well, then why don't you make up characters? And it's like, I don't want to do that. Because I've already figured out how to draw my head and my hair and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's easy. Right. It's kind of like a way in. And I don't think I make them about me. I think they're just about, I hope they're just about life or people connect something right. about. There you go. Yeah. The connections they, with people. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I'm always, I've been really trying to backpedal out and get more into other stories but i'm also very concerned it's hard to love other people's families mm-hmm. you know oh my great aunt so-and-so and the minute people start talking you go <laughs> <laughs> you lose interest huh yeah I don't care, your aunt or your grandmother or something like that i mean but I, if they I, were born with like a very large birth defect that's more interesting right that's terrible. No, it's just how do you get it away from being like your precious? Only you know some people. Some people who it can't be just you're doing this because of a family treasure component. There has to be something to it, and I can't make it be about oh this is me and my family. It has to be about. Do you get this about humanity? Right. Have that you makes had sense. This feeling, the this human vibe? exchange. Yeah. So there was one Weirdo 22 took place in 1967. I think you're 16 at this point. And grandma had a stroke trying to elope. Is that right? Did that really happen? That wasn't mine. That wasn't yours. Return of Mrs. Kite. No. Did I read that wrong? Oh, yeah. yeah oh, no, the, the, uh, yes, 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 yes. That definitely is. Oh, yeah. That was yours, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad because I, I, I was going to commit myself to a hospital if I got that wrong. Yeah. Don't worry, I'll rescue you. Yes, the return of Mrs. Kite. Yes, yes. Yeah, that was that was my grandma Stella. Okay, so that that happened. Yeah, true story. True story. I think you know the other thing is my parents were story. My dad was my dad and mom were both storytellers. My dad would sit down. I think it's he'd sit around the table and they'd be getting drunker and he'd be saying the next thing he'd be slamming the table. The jokes, you know, they'd be laughing about, oh, Chuck, you're a son of a bitch. Just the way that they would encounter life and then talk about it. And I'd hear that. So I heard that story about him him shoveling her driveway and then she stepped across. You know, I heard that. And this shiny sleeves thing. My mom told me that she had the shiny sleeves because she'd use it to rub her nose. Like, oh, that's so gross. But it's just like. My mom remembered that funny, odd thing, you know, that grandma had shiny sleeves. 
and just things about them. So it just putting that together. And it was my 16th birthday, you know, she had that stroke and then died. It was like, and I intended for that to be a long saga. I was going to continue that. In fact, I drew the second part of it, it takes it up the next day in my high school and all this stuff. But it just, it never, I, I didn't get finished. <laughs> okay. I got you. kids. You know, right. Job. Right. And, uh, you know, we're talking about, Oh, we're going to do a story for weirdo. I'm going to get what? $35 a page. Well, I'm going to work my ass off. But I'll end up with $200 at the end of this. That'll just about cover what? <laughs> well, yeah. Cause that, that kind of goes into the uh, anatomy of a new mom in 1988 and you show varicose veins unshaved legs bigger thighs plugged milk ducts everything's painful just brutally brutally honest adjustment to the new state have you do you have this in your family you got kids yeah Uh uh-huh so i wouldn't say that i have it all those things but yeah i mean i know there's definitely a change yeah that's going on yeah there are things going on for sure yeah above and below that this and when I did you know, later, I did the outrage of that same time. We were still being sold the idea that motherhood was so beautiful and perfect, and there was no downsides, and you know you had to do a natural childbirth, and it was going to be wonderful, and we were going to be better than our mothers. We're not going to use forceps and all this kind of stuff. And you know this was this was the epic epitome of womanhood and all this. And for me, it was like. This hurts. It was terrible. And I I had such a long labor. And it was. I was also by myself. Isolated. I had no help. It was just me and Justin who was gone on sign jobs a lot. So I was an isolated mom. And I it was awful. Mm-hmm. I've talked it over with my kids. She knows. You don't you don't have a kid with an unavailable mate or a solo with no resources without having that take on it. Right, of course. Yeah, it's a very real it's almost and there was a no late, there was there's no a name for postpartum. Postpartum psychosis I had I had postpartum psychosis. There was no name for that. Right. Yeah, you know what I mean defined, yeah. That wasn't a thing. You just had to pull it together. Yeah. So when I drew that, that was like, that's exactly what, this is what I went through. Because when I had my baby in the maternity room there, there was a picture of a woman in soft focus and she had her infant and she was laying in as perfect. It was like, mother. And And I was like, get that thing off of me. Get your hair away. I couldn't stand it. Yeah. I didn't want it. Yeah. And that anatomy of a new mom was a very, very focused image. Uh, There was no soft focus on any of that. Yes. I had a baby, but look what it did to me. And there there, there was no talking about it. Nowadays they do. There's help for women. I, I did my part. I tried (laughs) to bring people to the awareness that it's no, it's no cakewalk. Right. Now, still talking about weirdo, tell us about Lisa Lee. It was like a secret identity of like critiquing or commenting on submissions and writing. Who, who was Lisa Lee? Who was this this character? Aileen said, 
Carol, help me. <laughs> I've got so many people sending in stuff and I don't have time to read all this. Could you do this? I said, I'll do it, but I got, I can't do it as myself. I'll do it as a fake character. So I became the, the weirdo offices, which don't exist. The office slut. And I was going to tell these stories, you know, <laughs> I, I was going to review all the stuff, but mostly all I did was talk about the working conditions. Yeah, I got you. At the weird, it was all fake. I like the head swagger, as you said, office slut. I've never, that's, uh, you have a good way of expressing these ideas. <laughs> so, you know, Very well animated. Then I had this idea, you know, she was going to make money on a, she had a money-making scheme to get her out of these this hell which she was in. Right. <laughs> how to, how to, I don't even remember it, but it was just, you know, something. And, I, and then I, at the bottom, name a few people. Yeah. <laughs> people who sit working. So the main thing is I t- turned it all about Lisa Lee and her complaints. Uh-huh. It just, you know, then it was easier for me to do because it was like, holy God, I'm supposed to read through all. I couldn't. Right. Like more than Aileen could because I also had stories due. And a little kid and I'd have to get a story due by her deadline. And then working through all this stuff is like, I'll just do it that way. Right. That's that's good. <laughs> Yeah, nobody seemed to care about it. I mean, I, I never heard a word about Lisa Lee. It and this was a, was this in any the alliteration was that in any way linked to Lois Lane at all? Yes, you caught it. Very few people did. Well, okay. it was me. Well, yeah, I mean, Jim, 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 uh, Jim, and I discussed this beforehand. Yes, Lois Lane and Lana Lang, right? Lana Lang. So it was about that. So even though you weren't really. Uh, Superman, or you still had these. It was in our household. Yeah, it was in our house. It was in the house, so you knew the name. My yeah, sister, my sister, and brother. When when we were little, there were always. You remember the fifties? There was always some secret decoding thing going on, or you know, there's always stuff they were throwing at us in pop culture. And you know, one of them was LL. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of LL in pop culture. Mm-hmm. So. so now in 1988, you were awarded the inaugural Doris Sater Memorial Award for Best New Female Cartoonist from Last Gasp. So yes. did you feel like I've made it? I've I've be, I've become recognized. This is a validation of what I'm doing. What, how, tell us about that experience. It was gut wrenching. I had a couple, I was in the right place at the right time. I just showed up in San Francisco and I was painfully aware of the fact that people were there for years and yet I was getting stuff published and, you know, people liked it. People were writing into weirdo saying they liked it. And I felt like, Ooh, did I earn this? You know? Hmm. And then I was in some women's stuff and women's had been around a long time. And here I was showing up and then I had a cover and I, I felt, I felt bad about all that. Because, you know, I'm, I'm from a working class family. You know, you start out as an apprentice and then you're a journeyman and then you're a master. And here I just kind of showed, I just felt terrible. And then there was the, Dory was a wild woman, friends with Christine Critter. Critter and those two were San Francisco with Don Donahue, drinking a lot, partying a lot. And 
the crumbs loved her and she had work in weirdo. But Trina and Ron Turner came up with the idea for an award. And when she passed away, they thought they would put it in her name, which mortified Aileen and Diane. Because it was as if, wait a minute. She wasn't rolling with women's. She was ours. You know, it was like this faction thing. I was like, what do you territory. mean? Territory. There was a territory deal. Territory. You knew about that? Well, Did no. I mean, we're getting this from you now. Yes. Yeah, there was this idea that there was women who did comics for pol- political reasons and then other people who, as Aileen said, likes to get laid. <laughs> right. Yeah, some people like some people like that. And so there was like this, these two, and here I am nominated for this award. Yeah. And people are saying, don't accept it. You know it's in Dory's name. Other people would say, it's an honor to accept it. It's like, I'm in the middle and I'm like, I don't even know if I belong at this party. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, there's like politics around this. Yeah. I love Dory. I met her and she was wild. She was okay. You know? And then I won. I won. It was in the San Diego Comic Con, given to me by Ron Turner. And I was standing there with this huge trophy he put together with her dog on the top. I was just standing there. I could not talk. Right. Kind of rocking hard place. I could just feel it. Like, if I accept this, they're not going to like me. If I don't accept it, they're not. And it's like, why is this happening? You know? Yeah. I just said, someday I'll be able to talk about this. But I, I think I was able to get out. You know, I feel terrible that this woman died. I feel honored to accept an award in her name, something like that. There you go. But I, I couldn't, I absolutely could not talk. And here I was, a blabbermouth who used to get in front of crowds and tell wild stories and have them laying them out in the aisles. And yet I was at San Diego, blah, 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 couldn't talk. It just, I just cried too much. Yeah. Yeah, you're kind of speechless with all that. Makes sense. There's a quite a few conflicting forces happening at the same time. And I mean, it wasn't just the women's. There was people were people would have fist fights at these underground comics parties. Hmm. <laughs> they were fighting over women. They were fighting over this. They were fighting over that. They get drunk and they fight. There were people punching. Hmm. This one would punch this one. This girl would be with him, and then she'd go be with him, and then he'd be with her. It was a mess. Wow, sounds like. Rock and roll lifestyle, though. Right it was. There. It was the early undergrounds, totally rock and roll. And then I jumped into that. There was more drama, more rock and roll, crazy. But then, of course, I was in the domestic side. I was up in Sacramento with a kid and Justin Sign Painter, so it slowed down quite a bit. But the crumbs <laughs> were my neighbors, so they saved my ass. The crumbs were over here in Winters, and in Dixon there was Bob Armstrong. I didn't get to see him that often. Oh, cool. But I did go hang out. Aileen and I hung out a lot. Yeah. A while there. Okay. Winters. That's where the crumbs lived. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. All right. Well, Jim, go ahead on women's comics. You mentioned, you mentioned a Diane. I just want to clarify. That's Diane Newman, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
I love them all. I love Diane. I love Aileen. I love Trina. Right. Well, I wanted we're, to get into we're, that we're a little actually bit. Actually, a quick, uh, quick question I have. Were the fights fueled by alcohol or cocaine? The underground stuff was booze and pot. Booze and pot. Okay, there you go. All right. Cocaine does not make you fight. Yeah, okay. There you go. So it's more the booze and the pot mixed, some comics, some rock and, and jealousy, roll, jealousy, sexual, bravado. Yeah. You know, I'll show you. Okay. Get like that. And then <laughs> with the women, it would be just yeah, smirking and all that stuff. It'd be like, oh, stop. I don't know. I want no fights. Right, right. That's cool. Well, this is awesome. Thanks so much, Carol Tyler. Stay tuned in a couple weeks for part two. 